парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. In the final days of World War II in Western Europe, Georgians serving the Wehrmacht on Tessa Island off the Dutch coast revolted. In just a few hours, they massacred some 400 German officers using knives and bayonets to avoid raising the alarm. An enraged Hitler learned about the mutiny and ordered the Germans to fight back, showing no mercy to either the Georgians or the Dutch civilians who hid them. It was not until May 20th, 12 days after the war had ended, that Canadian forces landed on the island and finally put an end to the slaughter. What was the larger context for the Tessel uprising? How did these Georgians end up in the Netherlands in the first place? And how is this event even remembered? Here's Eric Lee on this little-known story from the final days of World War II. Eric Lee is a journalist, historian, and trade union and political activist in the United States and the United Kingdom. He's the author of several books, including Saigon to Jerusalem, Conversations with Israel's Vietnam Veterans, Operation Balsalt, The British Raid on Sark and Hitler's Commando Order, and The Experiment, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921. His most recent book is The Night of the Bayonets, The Tessel Uprising and Hitler's Revenge, April-May 1945, published by Green Hill Books. Here's Eric Lee. So just to start our conversation about your new book, Night of the Bayonets, the Texel Uprising and Hitler's Revenge, April, May, 1945. I'd like to have you start by introducing yourself. Okay, my name is Eric Lee. I'm um, an author, a historian, and journalist based in London, England at the moment. You know, one of the things I, I'm I, I'm fascinated by um, with you is your interest in Georgia and the history of Georgia. Um, this is your second book proper, if I'm correct, that you're dealing with Georgia in particular, but you, you have been studying the history of Georgia for many, many years. What, what draws you into this interest? What fascinates you about the, about the region, about this country? Yeah, it's, it's sort of not the usual thing. My interest in Georgia, people will often tell me, oh, you must love it because of the wine, you know, or, or the views, or some kind of ethnic connections. None of that is the case. Georgia is a fabulous country to visit, and the wine is legendary. But um, what appealed to me was, as a young political activist and a, um, a Bernie Sanders-type democratic socialist, uh, I found Georgia's history in the 20th century interesting. Georgia was the, maybe the only country in the world where uh, democratic Marxists came to power and got to try out their very radical ideas about democratic socialism. And that was only for three years. But that that period fascinated me, and that was what my previous book was about. You know, let me ask you about, like, you know, since you mentioned Bernie Sanders, and I know you're politically active as well in in leftist politics, and as, as you described yourself as a democratic socialist. And you know, given given the experience of your last book, and this is the last time I interviewed you on the the short lived, um, you know, Re- Georgian Republic after the Russian Revolution. How do, you know, looking back on that book and what has happened in terms of uh, the left in the United States, in England and, and elsewhere in the last couple of years, what kind of can you speak a little bit about how that book helps you reflect on, you know, the defeat of, say, Corbyn and, and Bernie Sanders and where we are right now? Sure. I, I don't think Corbyn and Bernie Sanders are, are the same thing, having been very involved in the American election, but also living in England. We've gotten to look at both of them. I mean, Sanders is a classic uh, European-style democratic socialist, a social democrat. Um, and I don't think his, either of his campaigns were 
in any sense of the word failures, especially in 2016 when he was a, an unknown you know, senator from the smallest state there was, an out-and-out Democratic Socialist, and came within a hair's breadth of stealing the nomination from Hillary Clinton. That, to me, was a win. And he, and he changed the agenda, and he changed the way people speak about politics in America forever. And, and the last election, I think he also did, I don't think it was a defeat. I think when you run against, you know, whatever it was, 15 or 20 other candidates, and then like one weekend, they all gang up on you and decide they're going to throw the weight behind Biden, leaving Sanders with only, you know, 40% of the delegates. It's still pretty impressive. So, and his ideas are absolutely the ideas on the table. And the fact that the people can say words like democratic socialist in America now was unthinkable a generation ago. So things have really changed enormously. Um, Cor Corbyn was also obviously um, wanted people to see him as a kind of British Bernie Sanders, but Corbyn comes out of a very different tradition, more of what we would call here the anti-imperialist tradition. So he sees everything that's um, hostile or uh, opposed to the United States or to Israel as being somehow positive, meaning Russia or Iran. Uh, Sanders was not in that category at all. So they're very, very different politicians. They're very different views of what democratic socialism means and and do you have any do you do you does your book you know your research into georgian social democratic marxism give you any insight into your analysis and understanding of of the left today yes it does i mean the georgian social democrats who took power in 1918 and, and stayed in power for three years until the russians kicked them out um they were classic marxists they they did not they didn't revise or interpret or they really read marx and they believed it so they believed very strongly that uh, there is no socialism without democracy, and no real democracy without socialism. They, they didn't believe in any kind of dictatorship, even a, a positive one. So they were completely at odds with, with the Leninist view. So they would never look at a society that had um, political prisoners or concentration camps and see the positive side of it. And that wasn't, you know, that's sort of how um, parts of the left look at things now. They never looked at the world that way. To them, democracy, human rights, a multi-party system, free elections, free speech, free press. This was central to how they viewed the world. That was, that's their first, first and foremost, they were Democrats. So I think the left can learn from that, because I think the left over many years has kind of lost a bit of that and has accepted that regimes like, you know, the, the Soviet Union in its time, or, or later Cuba, or, I don't know, Venezuela, were somehow progressive. The Georgian Social Democrats would never have looked at things that way. Do you do you think say the experience of of the Georgian Marxists and and this this you know social democrat this social democratic republic that they established you know one of the things that um, I've been thinking about recently and I'm curious about your thoughts is you know the words words like democracy are thrown around um, you know of course amongst in liberal circles and and in you know conservative political circles but also on the left right there's lots of rhetoric about you know the type of democracy we want but i feel that there isn't a lot of substance behind that and a lot of not a lot of serious thinking about well what kind of you know what would a democracy what democratic kind of democracy are we fighting for you know in real terms do you feel that that experience of uh the social democrats in georgia could give us some you know insight into the type of democracy a social democratic movement should be fighting for absolutely they were I mean, they were inventing things then, 1918, 1919, that didn't become popular until after the Second World War, such as a social welfare state. They, they had a, um, a, whatever you'd call it, a collaboration with uh, businesses, local governments, and trade unions. And trade unions were central to their view of a new society. To them, if there wasn't a strong and independent trade union movement, it wasn't really a democracy. And this was very much at odds with, with the view of the Bolsheviks had, which is that trade unions were unnecessary. And if you look around the world, the countries that don't have strong independent trade unions, like China or like, or like Cuba, where, where, where the unions exist are owned but owned to control by the state, that to me is not democracy. You have to have strong civil society and, and strong trade unions at the heart of a strong civil society. So that was an example of where they extended their view of democracy. It wasn't simply voting and political parties. It was a strong civil society with strong independent institutions, trade unions at the heart of that, of that vision. So in, in a sense, I mean, this is the other rhetoric, you know, we, we read and hear about a lot on the left today is this desire for, you know, working class institutions. But in, in many respects, large portions of the West, the left, particularly in the West, are somewhat disconnected from from working people. Uh, yes. This is why, since the Sanders campaign was so interesting, Bernie Sanders was 
was and is a big fan of traditional trade unionism. You know, he would show up on picket lines and strikes, things that are completely not fashionable today. Uh, he was not, Bernie Sanders never was a, a, a proponent of identity politics and, and, and sort of reduced much of what's going on to the social class. In that sense, very much a classical social democratic analysis, which the Georgians in their time would have shared. That would have been their view as well. Thanks for that. I, I, I've been, you know, I think it's interesting to, to kind of reflect on, on all this work you've been doing and how you, you understand it for our present. But now let's turn to your book, um, uh, Night of the Bayonets, The Texel Uprising and Hitler's Revenge, April, May, 1945. How, what drew you to this little known, well, what is this story briefly? And then what drew you to this little known story from World War II? World War II? Okay, so first of all, I'm going to correct you on one small thing. The, the moment I arrived on the island, I was told it is not Texel, even though it's spelled Texel. It is it's pronounced Tessel, and the, the Tessel, and the X is supposed to be some kind of medieval version of SS. Anyway, it's, so, so they, they say Tessel. And look, what drew me to it is this is a, a footnote in Georgian history, right? If you, if you study Georgian history of the 20th century, as I did, um, it comes up. It, it comes up, and it's, it's, a, it's a curiosity. And I learned about it because it just, it's just mentioned in quite a few sources. But I have to say that when I was researching it, and I would say, oh, this is a little-known or unknown story, I would be corrected, because to the Georgians and to the Dutch, it's a well-known story. So, so you know, we would say, of course, it's true to say in English, it's an, it's an unknown story, but, but not to them, though it's we'll probably discuss later, what they know and what actually happened are not the same things. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fascinating aspect of it, is... is the the myth and the memory that has 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 developed over that and we will definitely deal with that now you know and, and i remember this from your your book on on the georgian Rep social democratic republic this really interesting connection to germany um and and it you you start your book going kind of going back to world war one and, and and looking at this german connection uh you know it, around world war one and the, the russian revolution but what's what's of course interesting for for your book for this new book is that of course the Germany that these Georgians your characters eventually deal with are the Nazis. So can you outline this German the role of Germany and the place of Germany in the story, and then and then what? How did Nazis view Georgians? Uh, you know, vis a vis other ethnic groups in the in the Soviet Union. Sure, we have to start with the fact that the. Um Germany of 1918 was a very different place from Germany of the 1940s, right? And to, to any, any social democrat or socialist anywhere in the world at that time, Germany was seen as the homeland of Karl Marx and, and, and democratic socialism. So these, um, and one would learn German. If you wanted to really study socialist thinking, you'd, you'd do it all in German. So the Georgian social democrats were great admirers of Germany. That having been said, they had no intention of ever being a, you know, a German protectorate or allied with Germany in any way, but they found themselves in a situation in 1918 where the Russian Empire had collapsed, first been defeated in war and then revolution, and then Lenin's seizure of power, and Georgia was on the cusp of being um, defeated and occupied by the Turks, the Ottoman Empire. And this would not have been a pleasant thing for the Georgians. They were keen to prevent it. They had no military forces at their disposal to speak of. The Russian army which had been holding, holding the border against the Turks, was in disarray and retreating. And they needed to find quickly a solution. And they had a very clever idea. The idea was the Germans are allied with the Turks and that there are Germans around. We can ask them if they'd like to make a deal with us where they keep the Turks out and we do whatever they want. And this was what was negotiated. The, the Germans uh, basically told the Turks, stop your attempts to take over Georgia, pull your armies back, in exchange, Georgia agreed to become a, a German protectorate. What's interesting about this period of being a German protectorate, and it was a very short period, it was a few months, is that um, the great German Marxist writer, Karl Kautsky, who later visited Georgia, Kautsky wrote that the behavior of the German troops who had, what then came into Georgia was impeccable. It was like the one example he, he could think of where the arrival of the German army was something to be celebrated. And Kautsky was a and, you know, an anti-imperialist, an anti-militarist. He wasn't a big fan of the German army. But he acknowledged that their role in, and the role of Germany in Georgia in 1918 was an entirely positive one. But the Germany of the 1940s was entirely different. Right. And, that, and that's, that's, you know, that's really key because now, again, you have a, you know, a, different, a different, far different Germany. And, you know, and of course, 
part of the the German advance into uh, um, into the Soviet Union, of course, is is uh, their you know racial cosmology and how they understand different ethnic groups in the East. So, what was their attitude towards the German to, to the Georgians? Well, we know at this in part because of well, obviously there were differences among the Germans. Some knew Georgia better and were quite enthusiastic about you know we can use the Georgians as we can use the Ukrainians or the, the Baltic nations because we, we can break up the Soviet Union, they, they're all going to hate the Russians and so on. There was a whole theory. But everything in Germany in the end was decided by Hitler. It was his view that counted. And Hitler would, would, would pontificate to his generals and colleagues on a regular basis. And this was being transcribed. We have records of the things Hitler believed, the things he said. And he gave a whole speech once to his, his team about Georgia and about the other ethnic minorities of the Soviet Union. And he said, we cannot trust the Georgians. They're not trustworthy. We can trust the, the Turkic peoples. He means the Muslims, because they're all right. And he, and he had a warm spot here. There were quite a few examples of uh, Muslim countries and Muslim leaders who aligned themselves with the Nazis. So he was fond of them, but did not trust the Georgians at all. And in that sense, he didn't know why, but he was right. The Georgians did not have been very, very untrustworthy allies of the Germans uh, during the war. Though, as I say, there were some Germans... Uh, Rosenberg, in particular, who was in charge of the occupied territories, who were quite uh, convinced that these ethnic minorities in the Soviet Union could be turned against the yeah. Russians. Yeah, well, to the Georgians' credits, that they weren't good allies. Uh, um, yes, no, they, 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 they yes. were terrible. <laughs> but yeah. did, did did Hitler ever say why? Like, was there a particular reason why they could not be, you know, quote unquote, trusted? Uh, to, to the best of my memory, no, he doesn't say why. He just didn't. He just didn't like them. Remember, the Georgians had a, had an image of being. Um, you know, they were outliers in the Soviet Union. They, they were a border, a border nation. They would engage in things like smuggling. or They, they, would, they weren't entirely reliable as, as Russians, as, as part of the Russian Empire or under the Soviet rule. They were, they were quite independent thinking, mavericks, Wild West stuff. So I think that he knew their reputation. Right, right. Nevertheless, you know, like many, many of these, you know, ethnic groups from the from either the uh, the former Russian Empire or those who fled the Soviet Union, um, they nevertheless are, are drawn into the politics of um, Europe in the time. And you do have Geor Georgian diaspora communities in Europe. And of course, you know, like their, you know, maybe Ukrainian counterparts or or other ethnic groups are are drawn into different sides vis-a-vis -vis the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, where, how did this play out in the in the Georgian diaspora? Well, this is interesting. There were sort of two poles uh, of, in the Georgian community. There were the ones centered in Berlin and the ones centered around Paris. In Berlin, there were some Georgians who had moved there uh, between the wars and who had become moderately sympathetic to the Nazis. Remember, this is all pre-Holocaust, pre-Second World War, so it was just... Uh, all extreme right-wingers like the Nazis. And these people hated uh, the Stalinist regime in the Soviet Union. But they were a minority. The majority of the Georgian diaspora supported the Georgian government in exile, which was centered near Paris. They were social democrats. So they detested the Nazis, wanted nothing to do with them. And yet what, what united both sides when um, Stalin invaded, sorry, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, both sides, all Georgians, saw this as an opportunity to, cha to change the geopolitical map and for Georgia possibly to renew its independence. Keeping in mind, again, no one had a sense, certainly not these people in, in, the, in the Georgian diaspora, a sense of how uh, incredibly evil the Nazis were going to be. They didn't like them. Nobody liked them. But the idea that maybe the Nazis could somehow liberate Georgia was not an entirely unreasonable thought in early 1941. And what was, their, what was their role then during the war? Well, they all came under Nazi rule, even the ones in Paris. I mean, by you know, May 1940, Paris was in German, German hands, so they were all under Nazi rule. Um, and some of them became active supporters of the German cause and helped recruit people, as we'll talk about I guess, later, to, to the Georgian Legion, some of them, some of the right-wing and more nationalist ones. The Social Democrats were kind of uh, another leadership of the former president of Georgia, Noah Jordania, were based in Paris, and they were basically um, treading water. They were biding their time, waiting for the results of the war to play out. They played, I have a chapter in this in the book, an extraordinary role in the rescue of Georgian Jews who, who were supposed to put on their yellow stars of David and eventually um, you know, take themselves off to concentration camps or, or to their deaths. And the Georgian leadership uh, took the view 
that they were Georgians and that their being Jewish was not something they were going to be punished for and stood up for them, provided them with fake documents and so on, and rescued a very large number of, of Georgian Jews from the Nazis. Were these, were these Georgian Jews in, in, oh, in diaspora or were they in... Yes, no, it, no in the diaspora. In the uh, diaspora, yeah. yeah the Georgian, yeah. Georgian Jews who were in Georgia were entirely safe. Right, 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 because they never got that, the Nazi army never advanced, never got that far. Um, now, you know, your story is, is centered around this, this group of Georgian Red Army soldiers um, who, who are captured by, they surrender to the Nazis. And, and they're, they're, you know, kind of, they're pushed, not kind of, but they're compelled to uh, be part, to fight for the Nazis in the Georgian Legion. Um, it, t talk about how this develops. Okay, um, we have several different accounts. I mean, my, my favorite is this was a, in an interrogation of a captured Georgian who was wearing a German uniform. He was asked by his British captors, how did you wind up wearing a German uniform? And he said, I was in a POW camp, a German POW camp. They had isolated the Georgians, just as they'd done with other nationalities, kept them away from the Russians. And at one point, they told all the Georgians, hundreds of them, to stand in formation outside. And a German officer comes in front of them, and he says, all of you oppose the Reich. Each one of you opposes the Reich. Step forward. So no one steps forward. They know they're going to get shot. They step forward. And the officer then says, congratulations, you've now completed your induction into the Wehrmacht. So it's actually a true story. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, others tell the story. I um, spoke with, with the daughter of one of the leaders of the Georgian rebellion, uh, Artemidze. She said, told the story that the Georgians from the exile, diaspora Georgians, was sent into these camps and would call out the Georgians from their barracks, these POW camps. And that Artemidze, her father, had said he felt he was in a dream. He heard someone speaking Georgian, calling him to come out. He couldn't believe it. So there was a bit of that as well. But in lot, essentially, they were coaxed into um, joining the Georgian Legion because the alternative was to die. They would die of starvation, especially in the first winter of the war. Uh, you know, the Red Army prisoners were dying in their hundreds of thousands in these camps, dying of starvation. So um, uh, it was a star for fight uh, case being made. And almost none of them joined the Wehrmacht because they supported the German cause. They just wanted to survive. It was a survival instinct. And, and so what, what do you know about their time in this, this legion? You know, because after all, the group that you're talking about ends up in an island that is part of Holland. <laughs> so how did they get from, from, say, the Eastern Front, where they're captured, to, to the Western Europe? It's an interesting story, and it's a contentious one among some historians. Initially, they were used you know, on the Eastern Front. It was the obvious place to put them. And initially, a number of them were, were taken to the, the, basically the border between Georgia and Russia, where the Germans were still trying to break in to Georgia, trying to cross the Caucasus Mountains, not because they were keen to capture Georgia. They were keen to capture Baku and Azerbaijan for its oil. So, so the Germans got very close, and they were in the Caucasus Mountains. Some Georgians were sent there. The problem was, as fighters, they were unreliable. And the um, Georgians in the Red Army on the Soviet side would call out to them, you know, come over, and they would, in mass. So when they could defect, they often would, and they were considered to be unreliable, so eventually they were moved away from that front to take it first to Crimea, and then later to Poland, where they engaged in anti-partisan actions, and even there were unreliable. So finally they moved them to France, and then some of them to the Netherlands, to get them as far away as possible from a place where they could defect to the Soviet army. That was the main reason why they wound up there. In the Netherlands, they were basically guarding the beaches and the fortifications on this, on this island, Tessel. I want to I want to have you talk a bit about some of the personalities that you you discovered because you know there are some really important figures in this story and I'd like you to talk about who stands out as some principal characters amongst this group of Georgians. Well, among the Georgians um, on whom wind up in Tessel, there are two who stand out. One is a Shalva Loladze, who was a, a Red Air Force um, officer. We believe a pilot, though some Georgian historians contest that he may not have been a pilot. He was the highest-ranking Georgian officer in Tessel, so he was sort of, uh, he, was the, he stood by the side of the German commandant, and he was highly trusted. And there are photographs of him in his German uniform, um, which, which is an important point, as we'll discuss later, but the mythology of Tessel, he was clearly a fairly high-ranking. He commanded the, the Georgians under a German officer, Major Klaus Breitner, who was overall in charge of this battalion of Georgians on Tessel. Another significant figure among the Georgians on the island 
was uh, Evgenia Artemidze, who later on had the reputation of being the political commissar, kind of the representative of the Communist Party among the, among the men. It's not entirely true that that's what he actually was, but that's his, the image he cultivated after the war. And there were another number of others. Uh, most of them, uh, most of the Georgians, of course, died during the fight. Artemidze was one of the survivors, so he got to tell a bit of his history. Uh, off of Tessa, one other officer I should mention is um, the, the commandant of the Georgian Legion, an early one. Um, and now I'm blanking on his name. You'll have to edit this in. Um, I'm blanking the guy's name. But he was, um, at the end of the war, he found himself, he stayed in Germany, in West Germany. And in 1952, he was kidnapped by the KGB and taken back to Georgia. One would think to be punished. He had commanded the Georgian Legion, after all. And in fact, he was not punished. He was released upon his return to Tbilisi, where he went on to practice law and lived a quiet and peaceful life. And there's a lot of um, dispute about what was going on here. The argument basically is that Stalin was keen to convince the Georgian diaspora that it was safe to return. And, and so he would actually invite Georgians or, or kidnap them, as the case, you know, whatever was easier, and bring them back to Georgia. And this guy was one of the ones who, who survived. Yeah, wow. I wonder, I mean... Using the the KGB to kidnap them. That's that you know, like you said, like you know, if you get kidnapped by the KGB, you're going to get one in the back of the head, right? <laughs> like it does. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the whole story. I think we'll talk about the whole story of what happened to the Georgians after uh, the Tesla uprising is an extraordinary story, and one and one I did not anticipate when I began writing the book. I, it it it, de- it defies. Uh, I mean, we will get into it, but it certainly defies uh, a lot of assumptions <laughs> about what happens to some of these people. Um, but let's get to the revolt. Uh, you know, in the, this is the waning days of, of World War II. They're on this island, Tessel. Uh, you know, off the shore of the Netherlands. Uh, why do they? Why do they revolt? It is a bit of a mystery at first, and of course, the the Dutch people there are. Are very angry about the whole thing and saying, "Why would you revolt?" You know, the war was about to end. If they had not revolted, everyone would have survived. You, know, everyone would have gone home. Um, it's a complicated story. First, the Georgians were, were planning on revolting for a long time. We know that there were discussions going on for many months, even before they reached Tessel, about how they would revolt and why. They, they, they had reasons that existed for some time, including they thought correctly that if they didn't revolt. When the war ended and they would be sent back to the Soviet Union, they knew this because the Germans told them that the Yalta Agreement specified they would be sent back to the Soviet Union, they knew they'd be punished. So they thought, oh, well, if we, if we revolt, maybe we can, you know, escape that punishment we can, by switching sides late in the war. But they, no, they never did revolt. What happened was only a month before the war ended, the Germans were being badly beaten in, in the final days in the battles in the Netherlands. They um, had no manpower, and an order was given to Major Breitner, the German commander of the Georgian forces on Tessel, to take half of his men and leave in the morning and go to Arnhem, Arnhem where the famous Operation Market Garden had taken place the previous year, and to join the uh, Germans who were defending the city against the British and Canadian onslaught. And when the Georgians heard this order, they said, fine, great, see you in the morning, and then they convened in a wood outside of the main village on Tessel, and said, okay, no more delaying. This is the night we do it. We launch our rebellion, our revolt tonight. In what role did the, the local population uh, play in this? Because you do have, you know, Dutch communists who, who have, a, have, a, have a, a place in, in this revolt. Yes, well, when the, when the Georgians first started talking about a revolt, they were on the Dutch mainland, where they did have contact with the Communist Party, and they were, they were encouraged very much by the local communists to plan their revolt. The communists had their own reason for this. Their, their own history is a complicated one during the war, and they're particularly embarrassed by the role they played in the first um, two years of the war when they were basically allied with the Germans before the Soviet Union was invaded. So the Communist Party was very keen for the Georgians to rise up and to be seen to be part of that and help them. Um, when the Georgians arrived on the island, there weren't very many communists. They found the one communist woman who lived in the north of the island, and they befriended her. She befriended them. Um, that they did, they were in touch with the Dutch resistance on the island, the mainstream, you know, non-communist resistance. They had, they weren't able to inform them in time of the revolt, but they knew each other. And one of the stranger things about the story is when they arrived on the island on Tessel, I think in January 1945, Artemidze is wandering around the island, who's one of the Georgian leaders, and knocks on the door of one of the resistance leaders, and says, "I'm told you're the leader of the resistance here. We need to chat." 
and and you know, in later stories, the Georgians would tell they would claim they were they were just you know they were POWs who were held by the Germans. But POWs don't, don't get to wander around knocking on doors. And how they knew who the resistance was it was clearly they were more than just you know rank and file POWs held by the Germans. It was more complicated than that. But the, the but what triggered the revolt was the, the German decision, which was a very stupid decision, to take these untrustworthy Georgians and at the very end of the war and try to get them to go into combat against the British and Canadian forces. Part of the reason the Georgians used why they wouldn't do this was they believed that when they would get on, onto the Dutch mainland, they would immediately defect or flee or revolt, and that the Georgians remaining on the island would then immediately be slaughtered by the Germans. So they decided they would, this is not, we cannot divide our forces now. We'll all stay together and we will rise up. And and what's the what's the end game with this uprising? Because after all, the you know the last part of your title, the title of your book, is Hitler's Revenge. Yes, this is one of the stranger things we all imagine when we think of Hitler in April 1945. I think we all this picture from the film Downfall, right? Hitler uh, isolated, alone in this button of Führer bunker in Berlin. He's commanding no forces left. There's no chance at any point of winning the war. And yet, when the Georgians revolt, they're, they're largely successful. They capture most of the island. They capture the airfield and the port. They don't capture Major Breitner, who's not in the barracks where he should be, but he's with his girlfriend. Um, I was actually shown the house he stayed in that night. Um, he denied this later. And so he was able to escape. and He was able to get access to a radio, and he radioed Berlin and said, look, these Georgians have risen up. And Hitler responded. Hitler said, kill all the Georgians, and ordered German forces to deploy to the island. This is when Germany has only weeks left to the war, right? They don't have the forces to do this. It's a completely crazy decision. But Hitler was furious that people wearing the uniform of the Wehrmacht, who had taken a personal oath of loyalty to him, which was the case of all Wehrmacht soldiers, would rise up in rebellion. And he took it personally, and he, he took his revenge. Now, and, and this is it's really, I mean, we've already mentioned how fascinating this the aspect of what happens next with this story is that the Georgians that survive, for the most part, go back to the Soviet Union. And so what happens? To, first, how did they get there? And what happens to them? Okay, so first of all, they, 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 we say this was the last battle of the Second World War in Europe because they kept fighting each other, the Georgians and the Germans, until after the war had ended. The war ended in the Netherlands on May 5th, and of course Europe on May 8th. And they kept going at it until some Canadians landed on the island on May 20th and discovered them still fighting. And the Canadian officer who landed there was from an artillery unit, um, actually wrote in his unit's war diary, because he was told by the Dutch what was happening, and he said, it's like a musical comedy situation. That's how he described it. Because the Germans were desperate to get off the island and get away from these crazy Georgians who were shooting at them, and the Georgians were desperate to, you know, for it to end. Everybody was very happy the Canadians arrived and the war ended. So they found, first of all, they got the Germans off the island quite quickly. They were desperate to leave and save their lives. Um, the Georgians were a more complicated story because they needed to bury their dead. The vast majority of Georgians were killed. Um, there were maybe 200 or so survivors who were stragglers. They were all over the island. They were hidden in farmhouses. They were hiding in, in the dikes. They were in the, the woods. They were in the dunes. They were all over the island, those who had survived. Um, they buried their dead. They asked for permission to be, you know, stay a few more days on the island. The British, uh, sorry, the Canadians sent a, a senior officer to take charge of them and to get them back to the, the Red Army somehow. Uh, they encountered issues with this. The officer they sent was the son of the former Governor General of Canada who wrote the book, The 39 Steps, John Buchan. His son, who was also, a, I think, uh, was a Lord Buchan, was sent there as a specialist to get these guys back to the Red Army. But his main interest was actually in bird watching. So he, he arrives on Tessel. And he takes all these photographs and writes an article that appears one month or two months after the war ends about the birds of Tessel. It's the most extraordinary. He didn't write a word about the Georgians, why he'd actually gone there. So he takes them, he finally gets them to, to agree to leave. They've set up, they've created their little cemetery. They line up at the port. He says, okay, none of you can carry any weapons on board the ship. We're going to take you back to the mainland. The Georgians say, no, fine, you know, here are all our guns. They get them to the ship, then they say, okay, everybody empty your pockets. And all the Georgians said, pistols and knives, you know. So hand grenades, they threw the hand grenades, they exploded them in the sea. They acted completely crazy, but they were returned to the Red Army. Did, did they pass through any kind of, you know, filtration system in the sense of were they uh, interrogated about, you know, coming from the Soviet Union? Because, you know, I, I'm thinking here, I'm thinking of there was a huge project uh, at the end of the war 
where Soviet refugees or prisoners of war from the Soviet Union were essentially interviewed. Um, there was a big project by Harvard to do this. Were, was there any indication that they were you know, questioned about life in the Soviet Union? Uh, not, not as far as I know. They were questioned about what had happened on Tessel. And the result of that was the, uh, quite famous here, that uh, the, leading, the Canadian general in charge, commander of the Canadian armies there, wrote this extraordinary letter to be delivered to the Red Army, which was delivered, basically saying, we've talked to these people, they were amazing, they were part of the Allied victory, they were allies, we're very proud of them, please treat them accordingly. What's less well known is that Eisenhower sent almost the same letter not long afterwards. So the Allied leadership made it very clear that we consider these people to be part of the fighting forces and they should be treated in that way. And keep in mind, the Dutch Communist Party was saying the same thing, the enthusiastic supporters of them. Uh, they would have been interrogated by the, the Soviets when they reached Soviet forces, for sure. And, and, they, and they, were, they were separated out, and some of them were treated better than others. But yes, they were interrogated at that end. At the, at the Allied end, I don't think so. Yeah, I know the Soviet end, they, they did a, a very intense filtration system. But nevertheless, you know, unlike so many prisoners of war, I mean, Stalin famously declared during the war that there are, there are no prisoners, Soviet prisoners of war, there's only traitors. So what happens to them? Well, this is one of the stranger things, because I, like everyone else who knew, you know, one sentence about this, took for granted that they were punished when they returned. Right? I mean, everyone thought that. And it made sense, because even General Vlasov, who commanded the, the, the Russian Liberation Army, which was the, the last-minute attempt by the Nazis to get a, a Russian force fighting on their side, even Vlasov, who led a rebellion against the, the Nazis, who li helped liberate Prague, fought against the SS, he was summarily executed, he and his, his generals, right? So you wouldn't think the Georgians would be treated any differently than that. And they certainly had been, they had, um, as I think uh, as a Tolstoy wrote, that they betrayed their country twice, first by surrendering, and second by putting on the Wehrmacht uniform. And yet, and yet they returned to the Soviet Union, and they're, on the whole, treated remarkably well. I mean, in, in the end, they all basically all wind up back safely in Georgia. Some quite quickly wind up back in Georgia. Some, I was told, by, actually by the Dutch ambassador to Tbilisi, was was sent to, to, to Baku as a kind of uh, exile, but actually they could, they could walk to Georgia, for, and they did. They walked home. Okay. And, and they, yeah, they wanted to have quite quiet lives. They, they, were, you know, they were treated as any other returning Soviet soldiers and not as people who had served in the German army. Do you know why? Because there, you know, there is like in the in the immediate post-war years, there's, you know, local trials of collaborators. There's a hunt for collaborators, um, you know, particularly in, in Ukraine and, and other borderland states. Uh, there's, of course, the ethnic cleansing that occurred of, say, Chechens in 1944. Uh, there's reprisals again, you know, also ethnic cleansing of, you know, Germans um, in the Soviet Union. So... Do you have an explanation as to why these guys essentially got off? Well, this, this is tied into the, the, the mythology of, of the Tesla Rebellion. The, the, I mean, the Soviets had to decide what to do about this, this fact, this, this event that had taken place. And a year after the rebellion, the Soviet ambassador to the Netherlands was on Tesla unveiling a memorial, a monument to commemorate the heroism of the rebels. It, it was that quick. It took within a year. The line had become... The official state line of the Soviet Union was that these were prisoners of war who had done nothing wrong except maybe surrender to the Germans at first, who had the first opportunity got their hands on weapons and slaughtered Nazis. By the way, slaughtered Nazis largely in their beds by cutting their throats. I mean, they killed 400 German soldiers in their beds the first night of the rebellion. So, but the mythology didn't come from nowhere. It came in part from the, the Dutch Communist Party, played a very important role in creating this mythology about them and making sure the Soviets knew this. And following up on them, trying to make contact all the time with the Georgians who had returned to Georgia, the survivors. It was a mythology that was fostered in part by General Eisenhower and the Canadian general, General Foulkes. Um, it, it was um, in the interest of a lot of people that, that this, be, this be seen as what happened. And of course, the Soviets were, were cultivating uh, with the Georgian diaspora a new relationship, a hope that the war has now ended. There's no need for the diaspora to be hiding in Western Europe anymore. You're all welcome to come home. We'll, we'll kidnap you and take you home. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated picture of, of why they were as well-treated as they were, but you can't, you can't deny how overall they didn't suffer very much for what they had done. That they had, they had the Soviets, yeah. Given, given the, the you know, various interests in this story from the Dutch communists to Eisenhower to the Soviets, what role did the you know, brewing Cold War play, play in this? 
Yeah, well, first of all, the, the, the Dutch Communist Party actually was, was doing very well at the beginning of this process. Um, like all the Communist parties, basically all over Europe, they had a surge of popularity after the war, largely dependent on the image they had created that they had been fighting the Nazis since September 1939, which, as we know, was not the case at all. So they had a really strong interest um, for this to be seen as, as a rebellion they were involved in, that they, they, they part, you know, and these guys also, of course, the, the veterans of the rebellion uh, created the impression we were there, we, were, we never gave up on Soviet Union, we adored Stalin, we were loyal communists, you know, and, and so on. We couldn't wait for the chance to get back to the Soviet Union, resume our lives. Um, everybody was participating in this story. Everybody had an interest in, in this being the story that was told. And, and even the Soviet regime had no real interest in, in uh, letting people think that all these... And just like they say it's one of the great scandals of the Stalin regime that so many millions of, of Soviet citizens happily went over to the other side, which really didn't happen very much in, in other countries. There were collaborators everywhere in Europe, but collaboration on that scale was unbelievable. So I think it's kind of a mutual interest to pretty much everybody to, to lie about what happened. So what are some, you know, I was, I was really surprised to learn that there was even a film made in the Soviet Union about the, about the Tessel uprising. So, you know, what are some of the, the main myths that were cultivated in, in, in about this uprising? Yeah, the, big, the biggest myth, it is encapsulated in that extraordinary film. It's, it's been, in the English title of it is Crucified Island. Um, the good news is you can't find it anywhere. Um, the, the bad news is I actually have to watch it. There is, there is a version on YouTube. It's an extraordinary film. First of all, I mean, the history is completely made up. It really shows a bunch of Soviet prisoners of war you know, in, in POW garb on this island who decide to, to rise up and get hold somehow of German weapons. You know, I said that as if they weren't actually German soldiers, right, wandering freely around the island. I mean, on the island now, they talk about how they all had their girlfriends and there's children born after the war who were their children. And they were absolutely not prisoners of war. No, and yet, in this film, which was a commercial film, it was quite a success, uh, shown in the Soviet Union. They're shown it. It's, it's a Soviet-Georgian film, right? They speak Georgian, yeah. And uh, they actually did a, a world premiere of it, or sorry, a West European premiere of it, on the island of Tessel. I think in 1970, I cannot imagine how the people there reacted. I don't know how they reacted to the film. Um, I, I'm told by, by my Georgian publisher, we watched the film together, I for my sins, she told me that these Georgian actors in it but later became quite famous. They were all quite handsome and they're quite hunky, you know, and the film was showing them as incredible heroes. You know, they'll take their shirts off. And the Germans, they're all quite tall and good looking. The Germans are all scrawny and small. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible film. And yet this, this encapsulates the whole Soviet mythology about what went on. They were not traitors to the Red Army. They were loyal Soviet citizens. And, you know, and this was a line they all preached. Artemidze, who's the surviving leader of the Georgian rebels, took a little room in his house, in a tiny little house in a village uh, in the mountains, which I visited, and converted into a little tiny museum. And has pictures of Stalin and him, and pictures of... Uh, he gave an interview where he said, this, encaps this really is his, his interpretation. He wanted the world to understand. He said, my uniform was Hitler's, but my heart belonged to Stalin. So, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you believe that, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, it's it's extraordinary. What about the memory of of the Tesla uprising today? Because after all, you also interviewed some of the you know family members, uh, descendants, I guess, of of the participants. Um, how do how does this uprising regarded and remembered? Well, it depends depends where, right? In 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 uh, in Tesla, uh, and I spoke to, to to some of the older people there, but also there's a wonderful documentary that was done with interviewing many of the people of that generation. Um, they generally are overwhelmingly um, angry at, at the Georgians for rising up because many, many Dutch people were slaughtered. Uh, one has to find the slaughtered by the Germans. I mean, the Germans in their onslaught to recapture the island killed indiscriminately uh, Dutch civilians. But, but there, a lot of the Dutch people do think that the, the, um, the Georgians were very, being very selfish. They were doing this to save their own necks, and, George, and Dutch people paid the price for it. So it's not um, fondly remembered by the Dutch. And they, they actually, there are two cemeteries in the island, one for the Georgians, one for everyone else. The official state ceremony is not held in the Georgian cemetery, it's held in the other cemetery, and so on. The Dutch communists no longer exist as a political force, so there's nobody around to even honor the memory of, of the Georgians there. It, in Georgia, the memory is, and this I found really was quite striking, here's a country that had been under Soviet rule 
for almost 70 years. It was not a good time in their history. They were ruled by monsters. Um, and when, when they became an independent country, they could look back at their history and see all the lies they were told by the Stalin regime. But the history, they could learn, for example, that the Georgian Republic of 1918 was actually a good place to live. The social democracy was not a bad idea. And, and yet, certain myths persisted. And the myth of Tessel persists. It is, a, is, it is state-sanctioned mythology. And when um, the Georgian president, um, 12, 13 years ago, Saakashvili, yeah, visited Tessel. His wife was Dutch. So he went on what was called a private visit. You're surrounded by cameramen and, you know, and news crews and, and patriarchs from the Georgian church, but it was a private visit. Goes to Tessel, visits the Georgian cemetery, gives a little speech that could have been given by a Soviet official. It means no different about the heroism of these men who rose up against the Nazis, never accepting for a second that they were anything other than heroic prisoners of war. Uh, which is very strange. And even now, Georgian historians struggle with, with this issue. I, have a kind of, I had a kind of pre-publication debate with a Georgian historian who insisted that my references to them having been part of anti-partisan fighters was absolutely not true. That was communist mythology. What, what could possibly be my source for that other than a communist propaganda? And my source turned out to be, as I discovered in re-looking at my notes, was, was actually the interrogation of captured uh, Georgians by, by the British army where they admitted, admitted to anti-partisan activities. So it's hard for Georgians to accept the reality of what happened. It's hard for the Dutch to understand the reality of what happened. Um, it's, uh, it's mythology on all sides, but the Soviet myth is incredibly, strangely, has endured. One of the strangest things about this, yeah. Yeah, and, and it sounds like it has even been in kind of, it's been incorporated into a, a Georgian national myth, right? Right, it's, it's you know, which which is a really, when it comes to World War II, as you know, it's, you know, where, what is incorporated into the national myth and what is relegated to, you know, the Soviet, whatever, disconnected from the nation, the new post-Soviet nation, is a really incredibly contentious subject. It is, and in Georgia, almost more than anywhere else, remember the Georgia still has a, a state-owned, enormous museum honoring Stalin. Even though the state technically repudiates Stalin, they, they left this in place, you know, there's, and there's all kinds of confused ideas of, about Stalin's uh, meaning to, to history. And I know, I know in, in Russia proper, the Second World has also, has also been re-mythologized under, under the Putin regime, right? So it's totally different view. I don't know how they would view Tessel. But, yeah, but, the, but the facts about Tessel are, are in dispute, apparently, in Georgia today. And finally, um, you know, like, like we started, you've been researching Georgia for many years, learning about its history, writing about its history. Where do you place the the story of the Tessel uprising in your general view of Georgian history? What do you walk away with, with you know, when you when you from this story? Well, if if I were um, a, a proper writer trying to sell copies of my book, I would tell you this is central to an understanding of Georgia in the twentieth century. But but if I'm going to be going to be honest, it, it is a historical footnote. It is. We're talking about a few hundred Georgians in a remote island off the coast of the Netherlands, and no effect on the war. Uh, to speak of, and so on. What it does do is, it, though, it sheds a light on how terrible the, that period in human history was. Yeah, I talk to people now, and they say, could anything ever be worse than, than 2020? Like, the worst year ever. <laughs> you want to tell them, well, 1940 for one year, but really, random, almost, almost any year of the 1940s would have been un unbearable. And the Georgians show that in, in a microcosm, because these were young men, and they were all, whatever, 18 or 19 when they were captured, right? They were in their 20s when, they, when the war ended. They were, they were crushed between two totalitarian regimes. And they had, they had no good choices. You know, what do you do? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you not agree to put on a German uniform and instead die of starvation or be shot in a German camp? You know, do, do, you, do you resist the, the Red Army? I mean, they had no choices. They were, they were demons and horrors on both sides for, for them. So their story is a story of, it's almost a depoliticized story. It's young men who all they wanted to do was to survive. That's all. They, they, there was no politics in what they were doing. The, 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 my story of the Georgian Republic is a story about politics, about ideals and values and visions of a better world. This is a story about young men trapped in a nightmarish world of, of the early 1940s, a world in which Stalin or Hitler are going to win and dominate Europe. What a horrible world to be in. You know, thank God we're in 2020, this terrible year, and, and, and not living then, not living through that. Look at the choices they had to make. That was Eric Lee. Eric Lee is a journalist, historian, 
trade union and political activist in the United States and the United Kingdom. He's the author of several books, including Saigon to Jerusalem, Conversations with Israel's Vietnam Veterans, Operation Balsalt, The British Raid on Sark and Hitler's Commando Order, and The Experiment, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918-1921. His most recent book is The Night of the Bayonets, The Tessel Uprising and Hitler's Revenge, April-May 1945, published by Greenhill Books. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thank you to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye! I know that I mean it. Maybe they're as evil as they seem. Or maybe I only look out the window when it's scenic. Atmosphere finally made a good record. Yeah, right. That shit almost sounds convincing. The last time I felt as sick and contradictive as this was the last time we played a show in Cincy. Get real, they tell me. If only they knew how real this life really gets. They would stop acting like a silly bitch They would respect the cock Whether or not they believed in it Doesn't take much and that's messed up Because these people do a lot of simple shit to impress us While everyone was trying to outdo the last man I was just a ghost trying to catch some Miss Pac-Man Hello ma'am, would you be interested in some sexual positions and emotional investments? See, I'm not insane, in fact I'm kinda rational When I be asking, yo, where did all the passion go? East Coast West Coast, down south, Midwest. Nowadays, everybody knows how to get fresh. Somebody give me a big yes. God bless America, but she stole the.